Good morning. That was a little slow, wasn't it? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. This is our Recovering Awe teaching series. We're going to talk about perspective. Pop quiz time. If you were with us last weekend, I asked a couple of questions. Here's one of the questions. Don't answer it out loud. I want you to talk it over with the people sitting next to you. What's the main difference? How many were with us last weekend, real quick? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. We'll see how good your memory is, okay? What is the main difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Main difference. Ask the person sitting next to you real quick. Do that. You over in the breezeway do the same, okay? Okay, what came to mind? Relationship. relationship, relationship. How many were thinking relationship? It's astounding. It's overwhelming. It's amazing that we have a relationship with the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. In fact, a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is what I put down here on my notes. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And if you have a relationship with God and walk with him, you commune with him, you enjoy him, you interact with him, that's a relationship, then over time, you will more and more put off folly and put on wisdom. You agree with that? You're going to be more and more a person of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. And then it goes on, it says, uh, intimacy or knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's talking about intimacy with God, the creator of the universe. And so we got to define a couple terms here before we uh, move too far into this study. The first one is fear. What is the fear of the Lord? Let me give you what I think is the best definition for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. I mean, you're wrecked. When you begin to, when you really encounter the living, resurrected Christ Jesus, you're wrecked for anything else once you've tasted of his goodness and his greatness. And then wisdom comes out of that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is, I think one of the best definitions for wisdom is wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. I think that's on your notes. I want you to put a a slash next to perspective and add power. I was thinking about that this after, uh, yesterday afternoon before uh, Saturday evening's message, and I thought, it's actually involved not just perspective, but also power, his empowering presence in our life. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and power. It is competency in life's realities. It is, it is holiness, it is godliness, it is sanctification, it is being fully devoted to Christ that gives us the fullness of life. It is a, a biblical worldview. How many are familiar with the wisdom literature found in the Old Testament? You guys know what I'm talking about when I say wisdom literature? Not very many of you. You're afraid to even raise your hand here this morning? Okay, there's a couple of you. So there's a section in the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature. What are some of the books that are part of that Wisdom Literature? 
Proverbs, yeah, Proverbs gives us the, the mind of God. It's a great book. I read that, read Proverbs every day, one a day. And then, uh, and then also there's Psalms. I read five Psalms a day. And that gives you really the heart of God. But before Psalms, there's another book as part of the wisdom literature. It's Job. So you got Job, Psalms, Proverbs. And after Proverbs, you've got what? Ecclesiastes, that's the book we're in. And then after that is the Song of Solomon. All wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature is, is a bit, there's Proverbs, there's poetry. It takes some time to kind of get through it. But it's helping us to see, really, it's giving us, it's helping us to see and respond to life from God's perspective and power, giving us a, a biblical worldview. And why is a biblical worldview so important? Because, I think this is also in your notes, your perspective, your perspective about the events in life <clears throat> will not only determine how you feel about those events, but also how you will respond to those events. Okay, look up here just for a minute. So it's not the events, and I'm not minimizing the events that you may be going through. You might be going through some horrendous events in your life. But it's not the events that are making you feel the way you feel or respond the way you respond. Oftentimes we want to blame what? People, things, and circumstances for the way we feel and the way we are responding. That's, that's not true. It's actually, it's your perspective, it's your evaluation of those events that determine how you feel and how you're going to respond to those events in your life. That's why wisdom is so important. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and power. Uh, there's a great verse, you have to read it from the New American Standard because it doesn't read right in the other translations, but it's Proverbs 23, 6, and it goes like this. As a person thinks within himself, then, anybody know the rest of that? Then so is he, then so is he. So, so our thoughts, our, our worldview, our perspective, how we evaluate the events of life is going to determine how we're going to uh, feel about those events and how we're going to respond. That's why wisdom is so critical to our lives. That's why it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let me read to you a quote from, real quick, before we pray and we dive into our text. This is from the book uh, by Randy Alcorn, Happiness, and it's in uh, the chapter titled, uh, Happiness is a Choice. This is what he says. We constantly choose whether we'll think and act in ways that make us happy. Psychologist uh, Henry Cloud writes, <clears throat> just like your body needs certain nutrients to make it healthy, your heart, mind, and soul need certain practices to make them happy. And this is what I found really quite interesting. He says, happiness researchers have found that circumstances can contribute about 10% to your happiness, a remarkable small percentage. So circumstances only hold 10% of your happiness. But he goes on and says here, next comes our internal makeup, including genetic factors and temperament, which can account for 50% of your happiness level. So there's, there you got 60%. The final 40% is entirely within your control, our choices, behaviors, and thoughts. That would be that wisdom part, that perspective. Yes, we can control our thoughts. They're not foreign invaders against which we have no defense. Those who believe they can't help the way they think and feel are simply wrong. Why are some people happier than those in far better circumstances? The answer is 
perspective. It's perspective. And so here's where we're going with the study uh, that we're going to only look at. I was, I was planning on doing the whole chapter. It was way too much. So I divided the chapter into two. It's going to push the, this series out a, an extra week. But I think it's really important. And so this week we're looking at really a contrast between wisdom and folly. He's almost kind of given us a checklist of this is what it looks like. If you're really walking in vital union and communion with the creator of the universe, this is what your life is going to look like. Little by little, you're going to put on wisdom and put off folly. That's, he's going to give us kind of a checklist for that. And then next week, we're going to finish up uh, this chapter looking, um, going from verses 15 to 29. We're going to talk about a toxic faith. And how you know if you're really on track and if you have a healthy faith or a toxic faith, a poisonous kind of faith. There's a lot of toxic faith going around in America today that has infiltrated many, many churches. And so we're going to look at that, make sure we're on track, and that's where we're headed with that. But this morning we'll look at this, this contrast between wisdom and folly. But before we do that and we take a look at these verses and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask for God's help. Father, we love you. We worship you. The more we get to know you, and walk with you and enjoy you, the one who loves us more than we'll ever know, the one who gave his son's life for us, the one who walks through our day with us, the one who will never leave us or forsake us, the more, the more it will change our perspective and ultimately change our lives. Help us to more and more put off folly and put on wisdom, seeing and responding to life from your perspective and your power for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this. So we begin reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. He starts off and he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. What is he saying there? All the cologne and perfume in the world can't cover up a bad character is what he's saying. If you've got bad character, you can put all the cologne on you want or all the perfume on you want, but it's you, you, your, character, if your character stinks, it stinks. And then it goes on, he says, it is better, the, the day of death is better than the day of birth. That's fascinating. Then he goes on kind of explaining that. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And I'm sure I've heard people say, oh, I hate going to funerals. And yet he's saying, What? He's actually saying it's better. It's better to go to a funeral than to go to a house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of faith, the heart face, the heart is made glad. So for by sadness of faith. The heart is made glad. That almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But he's, he's taking us really deep. He's wanting to, us to think deep about it. And that's, that's how poetry is. That's how this wisdom literature is. You have to really think hard about what he's saying here. It almost sounds like a contradiction. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In other words, he's saying wise people think deep about difficult and dark days, but fools medicate themselves with alcohol and drugs and partying and bar hopping and nightclubbing and shopping and working and gluttony and, and the like to numb themselves. But a wise person thinks deep about the things that really matter in life. Here's your first fill in the blank. A funeral is better than a party because it gives us an opportunity to inventory our lives, to inventory our lives, to think deep about life. Now, 
typically when we walk through this, I'll give you some cross-references. Scripture is always the best commentary for Scripture. And so the thing that came to mind for me was Psalm 90, 12, where the psalmist says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Okay, pop quiz time again. Turn to the person next to you and see if you can remember this. Okay, what I asked you last week. What is the greatest threat to you living a significant life or an impactful life or an unwasted life? What's the biggest threat to that? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, what'd you guys come up with? Anybody? Yell it out to me. Being satisfied with the lot that God has given us? I think, I think you're pretty close there. I think I like that. It's actually your joy in Christ, which goes along with that. Anybody thinking along those lines? Do I need to re-preach last weekend's message? <laughs> I'm thinking about maybe I might need to. I mean, I mean, have you noticed that we need to hear things over and over again? It's not whether or not, oh, I've heard that before, and you walk out, oh, he's, he's just basically preaching the same thing he's always taught for 25 years. No kidding. Nothing new under the sun. You need to have it beat into you, don't you? And I do too. I'm right there with you. See, here's the greatest threat to your living an impactful life is your joy in Christ. Your loss of joy in Christ, that is. I'm sorry. I really had, I'm going to have you twisted around before you know it. Huh? Your loss of joy in Christ. It's your loss of joy in Christ. That's your biggest threat to you living a life of significance. Uh, Westminster Catechism puts it like this. What is the chief end of man? What, why are we here? Why do we exist? Chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's why we use the phrase here. Regularly, God is most glorified in us when we are what? Satisfied. Most satisfied in him. So the greatest threat to your living a significant life would be losing your satisfaction in Christ. That's what you need more than anything. Now, what's interesting is that this book of Ecclesiastes is basically, the essence of it, the summary statement would be that life is meaningless apart from God, but it's more than that. Not as it not only is it saying that life is meaningless apart from Christ, but it's also telling us over and over again that there is no one and there is nothing that can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul like Jesus, like God. You can search until you're blue in the face and try to find it in creation, and it's a wild goose chase without the goose. It's, it's crazy. You're not. And that's what he's wanting us to understand, that satisfaction comes from God. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Listen to me, you were created by God for God to give glory to God. And the best way to give glory to God is to find your deepest satisfaction in him. And, uh, and so what's fascinating about this verse uh, found in Psalm 90, 12, it says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Well, a couple verses after that, this is what he says. So how can we have a heart of wisdom? He says in uh, Psalm 90, 14, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses. I've got a lot of favorite verses, though. I've got a few billion of them, but, but he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad 
all of our days. What is he saying? Before your feet hit the floor, this is what you should be asking for. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Oh God, nothing is more satisfying than your steadfast love. And if you'll satisfy me with your steadfast love, then I will, what did he say? Then I will rejoice and be glad all of my days. I'm finding such great delight in you. Uh, David, in his uh, Psalm 51, and his repentant psalm, remember, he committed adultery, murder, and he comes back to God because the prophet really challenged him, and so this is his repentant psalm, and in that repentant psalm, he says what? He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now, what's, what's fascinating about that when you understand that is that it wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. We sin when we lose the joy of our salvation. That's the essence of sin, really. That's the root and fundamentally why we chase after the things that we chase after is because we question whether or not he can actually satisfy our, the, the deepest longing of our soul. We think it can be found someplace else in creation as opposed to the creator. And so that's, that's it. So, so when you're looking at your life, and the, and the thing about when you go to a funeral, we've done a lot of funerals here, and I've done a lot of funerals, and yet I'll tell you what, it's made me think seriously about my life. Does my life, is my life making an impact? What is it that really matters? What really matters is that you're doing everything you can to find your deepest satisfaction in him, and then out of that overflow, your life is going to make an impact in people's lives. A funeral is better than a party because it gives us an opportunity to inventory our lives. Here's the next one. Let's continue reading verses 5 through 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I, you know, I'm not too fond of rebukes. I don't like being criticized, and yet through the years I've learned that I've, I need that criticism just as you need criticism. But you know the first thing that came to mind when I read that is uh, there's uh, one of America's most popular preachers, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. You probably know who I'm talking about. But he actually says, I've heard him say this multiple times, oh, we don't talk about sin at our church because people already have too much negativity in their life. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. How do you know whether or not you're, you're missing the mark? And don't you realize that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? It gets us back on the mark of what God has for us. And so you've got to talk about sin. I mean, every time I read the Bible, it, it confronts me with my sin so that I can allow the goodness of God to bring me back to him to realize, why would I take this path when I have him when I have what he offers me. But notice what it says. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I mean, we tend to even pick our friends and even pick our churches, the churches that we attend based on, on folly versus wisdom. There should be times when you leave here on a weekend service that you feel really convicted. And there's a major difference between conviction and condemnation. You don't want to be condemned. Condemned, condemnation pushes you away. But conviction stirs you and moves you in the direction of God. You want God more than anything. The difference is also uh, based on what motivates you. Because, see, with, with fear and pride... It can restrain the heart. Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but only love can transform the heart. So it should be love-motivated. The reason why you want to get off the, the track you're on and move towards Christ, that should be love. Your heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. And so there are those times that we need that rebuke. So it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
Now notice this, he kind of describes it a little bit more, for as the crackling of thorns under the pot, if you've ever had a big campfire and you get some tumbleweeds and throw them in there, what does it do? It just kind of, whew. I mean, it just, big flame, really hot, doesn't last. That's the point. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is laughter of the fools. So he's kind of comparing it to that of the song of fools. Yeah, you got people, you can find churches, you can find people that will stroke your ego, but it's not going to last. There's no substance. It's not going to build your character. That's what he's talking about here. There's two dominant kind of narratives or beliefs in our culture today. There's expressive individualism, and then there's... Christian discipleship, those are the only two choices you actually have. Expressive individualism basically says express yourself, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Does that sound familiar? That's our culture. That dominates our culture. And, uh, but God wants us to, to go the way of Christian discipleship. And it really comes down to this question, is our highest authority self or God? So people are saying, well, my highest authority are my desires. See, that's why we have same-sex marriages in our culture today. That's why we have uh, uh, confusion, confusion over this whole transgender issue here because we are letting our desires be the highest authority rather than God's word. And let me just say something about that. That expressive individualism is both culturally and individually destructive. It's just as he said here, for as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot of heat, looks pretty powerful, but in the end, it's not going to last. It doesn't build into our lives. It's, it's the wrong, it's in the wrong direction. It's outside of what God has in store for us. It's basically saying to God, I'm smarter than you. I think you're holding out on me. I know better for myself, and so I'm going to walk this out and do it in the way that I want to do it. And ultimately, that's destructive. I mean, we, we did a whole study last summer in the book of Judges, and this, the whole book can be summarized in Judges 21-25. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's expressive individualism. There's not a sweeter place, there's not a better place than to follow God's directives and guidelines for our lives. That's the sweet spot. That's the fullness of life Christ came to give to us is to follow him and to live a life that's consistent with what he, he shows us and directs us. And so those are those two. And, and listen, you can find friends, you can find churches that will reinforce this expressive individualism. And, and a lot of this expressive individualism has infiltrated the, the American churches. Here's your point. Rebuke is better than praise because it keeps us from being self-deceived. Rebuke is better than praise because it keeps us from being self-deceived. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It also tells us in the 17th verse of that chapter, Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron as one person sharpens another. I'm so thankful that my wife, we wouldn't be married to this day if she hadn't challenged me and rebuked me and gotten my face over some issues in our marriage and in our lives and things that I had in my life that prevented us, that really hindered our relationship. I'm thankful for a staff and a board of elders that are willing to hold me accountable. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you, all you have is people in your life that suck up to you, you're on a destructive path, believe me. You're walking in the direction of folly rather than wisdom. 
See, these are the characteristics of someone who's truly walking with Jesus. This is someone who really, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Intimacy with God, this is what it's going to look like. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can be deceived by sin and be hardened by it. Therefore, we need people that will speak truth to us. If, um, if you can't handle criticism, like I said, I had a hard time handling criticism. If you can't handle criticism, if you aren't open to criticism, if you aren't asking for criticism, you, you do do that, don't you? You ask your spouse, hey, could you, could you criticize me here a little bit about... They kind of volunteer that, don't they? Yeah, I mean, for years, probably for the first decade or two, that I, I didn't respond well to the criticism of my wife. Like I said, we would not be married to this day if it wasn't for that, that criticism. And then my criticism to her, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now keep in mind, there's a difference. You don't want it motivated out of fear and pride. It needs to be motivated out of a heart that's smitten by Christ, that's out of love. Love transforms the heart. Only fear and pride can, can restrain the heart. Love transforms the heart. It's not about condemnation. It's all about conviction and getting us back on track. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we need that. It's important. If you can't handle criticism, then you're, you're headed towards folly rather than wisdom. And we talked about this back uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about relationships, the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes. You can't heal the deep places of your soul in isolation by yourself. You need people in your life. We call them life groups here. It's got to be more than just this weekend service. I mean, we could all get together one by one and I could sit down and criticize your life. Give you some feedback. I, I don't have enough time, and nor do you, and I'd have to go through a lot of people. That's why you, you do that in a small group. You give them permission to hold you accountable, to speak some hard truths to you, because those are the things that change your life and get you back on track and, and help you to realize that it's not about you, it's about Him. We all have blind spots, and the thing about blind spots is that you can't see them. If you can't see where you're weak and prone to fall, how are you going to keep yourself from falling? Proverbs 12.1 says, He who hates reproof is stupid. That's not nice. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Now, let's continue reading verses 7 through 9. Surely oppression... NIV uses the word extortion. Surely extortion drives the wise into madness. Uh, turns, in other words, he's saying turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. A bribe is a shortcut. You know, trying to make something happen faster than it otherwise would. That's, that's kind of the idea here. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Here's what he's saying here. It's, it's not how you begin a race but how you, how you finish it. Fools start with great boasting, but quickly fade when the work gets tough, revealing their soft character. Is really what he's saying in verse 8. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. 
That's what I did when I was criticized. I become angry and lash out. It became a wall that pushed someone back. Kept people from speaking into my life. But he's just saying, oh, that's a lack of character. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So he's just saying the wise or a person of character, people of character have a long fuse. Here's your fill in the blank here. So the difficult way is better than the easy way because there really are no shortcuts to living a quality life. I mean, we live in a culture today, we're all looking for the, you know, the, the magic pill or the silver bullet or something that will, you know, so that we can, you know, bypass the difficulties of life and just immediately have that quality life. There's no such thing. There are no shortcuts to living a quality life. 1 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of self-control or discipline. So if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you're going to be a person of discipline. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice it says work it out. It doesn't say work for it because we can't work for our salvation. We already have our salvation. It was from the work of Christ. It's a finished work and we enter into it by grace through faith in Christ. Quite amazing, by the way. This is what separates Christianity from all the other major cults and religions of our world today. Everything else is a works righteousness. This is a faith and grace righteousness. He gives that right standing with God to us. And when we realize that God looks at us as if we did everything that Jesus did, lived the life that Jesus lived, and died the death Jesus died. That's how he looks at us, that perfect righteousness. Then he says, I want you to work that into every detail of your life. It's called sanctification. It's called wholeness. It's called holiness. It's called wisdom. It's being a person of wisdom. It's beginning to see and respond to life from God's perspective and power. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act to give you the desire and the ability according to his good pleasure. Following Christ, having a strong marriage, being a person of character, having having financial freedom, anything in life that is worthwhile takes discipline. It takes discipline. It's hard work. I mean, if, if you're just checking the church box, going through the motions, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not praying, if you're not connected to other Christians, that all takes discipline. You're not going to grow. You're not going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and, and experience that quality of life that Christ has given us. A non-disciplined life will cost you more than a disciplined life. A non-disciplined life, if you just take it easy... No big deal. I can show up to church when I want to. I can read my Bible when I want to. That will cost you more than if you were to crack open God's word and spend some time on your knees before him. In the long run. Now, the reason why you do these things, they're called spiritual disciplines. You guys know what spiritual disciplines are. Yell yell one out to me. Going to church right here. This is spiritual discipline. Reading your Bible. Pray. Hanging out with other fired up Christians. And so those are spiritual disciplines. Why do we do spiritual disciplines? To increase our capacity to experience the presence of God. And therefore, his his indescribable and indestructible joy. 
There's nothing like it. Oh my goodness, spending time with him. So what's the major difference between a Christian and non-Christian? Relationship with God. Then we can know him. And out of that comes joy. And out of that joy, it overflows in the people's lives around me. That's when I begin to make an impact in other people's lives with that overflow of joy that he gives to me. A non-disciplined Christian life will cost you satisfying love and indomitable joy Deep abiding peace, a faith that sees God's loving, wise control in, circumstance, in circumstances, a hope that stands firm in otherwise despairing times. A non-disciplined Christian life will cost you the fullness of life that Christ came to give to us. So, the difficult way is better than the easy way because there really are no shortcuts to living a quality life. Here's verse 10. So, say not. So he's saying, don't say this. Why were the former days better than these? What are they talking about? They're talking about what kind of days? The good old days. <laughs> Remember those good old days? Man, I really miss those days. So he said, don't do that. He's saying that's not wise, for it is not from wisdom, it's not from seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and power that you ask this, known as the good old days. I mean, really what he's talking about here is it would be kind of likened to you're driving down the road and your rear view mirror is bigger, bigger, or totally keeps you from seeing your front windshield. It's bigger than your front windshield. Wouldn't that be crazy? Because you're constantly looking back. What, what happens if you spend too much time looking in your rearview mirror? And I've even seen people have their rearview mirror turned towards them. Oh, look how cool I look. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. But you have this, this big rearview mirror that's bigger than your front windshield where, you're, where you can see where you're going. That's the idea here. Here's what he's saying in verse 10. Today is better than yesterday. Because wisdom learns from the past, enjoys the present, and looks forward to the future. Now, at some point, everybody look up here just for a minute. We've all had things in the past that we don't even want to think about. And there's a major difference between recalling it and reliving it. And we've got, at some point, we've got to stop reliving the past and can still have a hold on our life. But the past is in the past, and you've got to move on at some point. Quit looking back with regret and dread, or with, with greater desire that if you could just go back there and repeat those days. Listen to what uh, Paul has to say in Philippians 3, uh, 3, 13 and 14. Now, this is the context where he says this. In 3.8, he says, everything basically, and this is my paraphrase, everything is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, he says, I want to know him. That's the passion of his life. That's what drives his life. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. That's the passion of his life. And then he goes into these verses. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So I haven't arrived there yet. I don't know Christ as much as I'd really like to know him. And you're thinking, wait a minute, 
Paul. You know him quite really well. You wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and you don't know him like you'd really like to know him? No, not yet. There's so much more to know about him. And so he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining. The word straining there is we get our word agonize. The Greek here is agonizo, but we get the word agonize. Agonize forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I mean, he glanced back in his rear view from time to time, learns what he needs to learn, but moving on to the future. What does God have for me? I got to leave the past in the past and I got to move on into the future. That's the idea. Back at the beginning of this year, we did a teaching series or not a series, but it was actually one, one week to kind of kick off the new year. And it was in Numbers chapter 13, uh, starting at verse 25 to chapter 14, verse 12. We called it a daring faith for 2016. I won't bother to ask how many remember that. <laughs> it always disappoints me when I say, you guys remember that message? That was like one of the best messages ever. It's like, no, we don't really remember that. <laughs> so here's the deal. What was fascinating about that study, and by the way, you can download and listen to any of these. You can get the DB Act and listen to this one. But it was the Daring Faith for 2016, and it really made this contrast between eyes of fear and eyes of faith. Remember when they were on the edge of the promised land, and they sent in the 12 spies? And 10 of the spies came back with what? A bad report. A terrible report. They were looking at it from, with eyes of fear. And what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. The good old days. The good old days? They weren't so good. You guys were slaves. But see, that's often how we think about it. And that's what they were wanting to do. Created quite negativity throughout the whole camp. And in fact, a whole generation wandered around in the wilderness for how long? 40 years until that whole generation died off. But there were two that came back with a positive report. And they were looking at the promised land with eyes of faith, not eyes of fear. Because they were thinking, hey, wait a minute, God promised us, and our God is big enough. And so they had this view of God that was big, it was high, it was beyond what they were seeing. It was really about perspective, it was about wisdom. And what was the difference between the eyes of fear and the eyes of faith? The difference between whether you're going to live a life with eyes of fear or eyes of faith is your concept of God, your perspective of God. See, don't misunderstand me here. And oftentimes people are offended when I make this statement. But I want you to think hard about this. Whenever you are terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, it's because at that moment you have forgotten who the God of the Bible is or you've never really known him. At that moment, you're, you, you are forgetting who it is that loves you and adores you and gave his life for you. Come on. They were on the edge of the promised land. He had promised it to them. And that they go, oh, we can never do this. And they went back and spread negativity. There were only two that said, no, we can do this. God promised it to us. And we're, we can go in there and take this land. God had promised us this fullness of life. There's almost this, this tenacity, this... This, uh, this overcoming kind of attitude that we need to have. And that's what happens when we begin to see just how big God is. See, there's nothing more powerful and practical than to know the God of the Bible intimately. You see, it's our concept 
It's our concept of God. Now listen to me. It's our concept of God that determines the quality of our relationship with God. In other words, when you came in here, if you came in here and as you begin to worship in song and your worship was kind of flat, it's because you got a real small concept of God. But hopefully, maybe through the worship, as we begin to sing those songs, you were reminded of his greatness and his goodness. Because you see, worship rises or falls with our concept of God. And the more you begin to see his beauty and his glory, see, that's what fear is. Fear is this, this life-altering, life-transforming Joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. I mean, that's what we should be praying. God, ruin me for anything else. Help me to see you. That's, what, that's the essence of this whole teaching series, recovering awe. Recovering that awe. So, it is our concept that not only determines the quality of our relationship, it's our concept of God that not only determines the quality of our relationship with God, but it also determines our ability to overcome the trauma and the temptations in life. Let me read to you something. This was actually from a pastor who was at a conference and he was speaking uh, to pastors and missionaries, and I, I believe it applies to us as Christians, and he was said this, he said, the greatest need for pastors and missionaries today and, and Christians is that we know and enjoy God, that we see <clears throat> and savor the glory of God. This is essential for displaying the glory of God. And that is the goal of all ministry and missions. Let me illustrate the need. Charles Meisner a scientific specialist in general relativity theory expressed Albert Einstein's view of preaching like this. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and, some, and, and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. Now, the author of this goes on and says, Einstein died in 1955. If he were alive today, his indictment would be even stronger because today we have the Hubble telescope sending back infrared images of galaxies of the 50 billion that may exist from as far away, they say, as 12 billion light years. <clears throat> 12 billion times 6 trillion miles. God spoke that into being. It is a playground for the Almighty. And over against this majesty, we have a steady diet on Sunday morning of practical how-tos, psychological soothing, relational therapy that betrays sooner or later that the preachers do not know God as they ought and do not regard him as infinitely glorious and worthy of one focused hour a week. They are just not talking about the real thing. Writer goes on here. <clears throat> I 
I think I need a drink of coffee here. Probably not. Einstein felt instinctively if the God of the Bible exists and if pastors and missionaries really know him and count him their greatest treasure, then something is profoundly wrong. They are just not talking about the real thing while our people starve for the majesty of God. Now, I, I want to kind of set it set the record straight that when you come in here this is not a lecture lectures will give you information this is not a motivational talk motivational talks give you action steps and certainly you're going to get information and you'll probably have action steps but, but sermons are meant to inspire worship that there should be a moment when you're sitting in your seat and as we discuss the things of God's word there should stir within you a desire you want him more than anything and that's how you, you, you'd choose a church. You'd say, man, I want a church that stirs up such an appetite for God within me that it wrecks me for anything else because I want to know the living God. See, that's fundamentally what's wrong with us oftentimes. The why we're overcome by the trials of life and overtaken by the temptations of life is because we have such a low view of God. And we tend to keep looking in the past. Today is better than yesterday because wisdom learns from the past, enjoys the present, and looks forward to the future. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Yeah, I want to. My sorrows and my cares, I want to get rid of those. Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Godhead meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing, reflecting upon the subject of the Godhead. Okay, we're almost finished. A couple more verses. We've got four more. So verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Talking about money and property. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here's the point. Wisdom is better than wealth. Because wealth without wisdom can result in financial bondage. I don't know how many times I've heard people say this. If I just had more money... My problems would be solved. More money is not going to solve your problems. Now, I understand if, if it means just meeting the basic needs of life. Yeah, you, you certainly probably need some more money. Or, but more importantly, you need some wisdom so that you can manage the money that you do have. And even if you got more money, I've seen people that got more money. They just mishandled the, that money, the more money that they got. Because they weren't managing the, the little bit of money that they did have. And so sometimes that can complicate your problems to have more money if you don't have wisdom. More money rarely solves money problems. The root problem is usually wisdom. And we've talked about this. We talked about it at the beginning of the year in our reboot series financially. And then a few weeks ago, we talked about money. On your notes, you've got the five biblical principles for wise financial management. I'm not going to spend any time on it. You can read through that. So you've got budget accounting, self-control, true wealth, and generosity. Now, verses 13 through 14. This is a, this is a heavy one. This is where we end. Consider the work of God. Consider the work of God 
Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Oftentimes we are clueless to what God is up to. That's what he's saying here. That's why we've got to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean upon our own understanding. That's what he's talking about here. So both good and bad days come from the hand of God because he loves us, knows what is best for us, and will always do what is best for us. You guys familiar with that uh, first book in the wisdom literature, Job? Remember what happened to Job? He took a beating. He was an incredibly wealthy guy. He lost everything. And he fell on his knees and worshiped God. And it ticked his wife off. <laughs> what did she say to him? Curse God and die. Thank you, honey, for those words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. So... Job got back on his knees and said to God, God, you've given me everything. Would you please go ahead and take her too, please? <laughs> I know it's somewhere in that text. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Listen to what he said here in Job chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. It's a safe way to say that. He wouldn't call... Wasn't calling her a fool. He's just saying, you speak like a foolish woman. I love you, honey. Everything cool between us? He says, you, this sounds pretty foolish. I mean, he says, you're not seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and power. That's what he's saying. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 13, 15, which is another powerful section in that uh, book, as he's dealing with suffering and the sovereignty of God, he says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. You see, that's the kind of faith I want. You call the shots, you write the script, I'm cool with whatever you allow into my life, I just want to put my hope in you and trust in you. In fact, it says, yet I will argue my ways to his face. There's some healthiness in that. He's still going to take it to God. I don't like what you're doing, but you're in control, and you're God, and I still love you, and I'm going to still surrender to you. Hebrews 12, 15 through 11 tells us, and this is kind of a paraphrase, it says, hardship for a child of God isn't punitive. It's not punishment, but it's purifying. You need to know that because I hear people this, and we're going to get into this next week when we talk about a toxic faith. I've heard people say, well, that guy died of cancer because he had sin in his life. Wait, 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 wait. Ouch. So you tell me God's punishing him for his sin? Yeah, that's right. No, 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 no. Jesus took his punishment on the cross. It is finished. That's a toxic faith when you talk like that. You're just like... Job's miserable comforters who said, well, Job, you must lack faith or you got sin in your life. Hebrews tells us that hardship for a child of God isn't punitive but purifying and can be very painful but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why we have to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not lean upon our own understanding but in all of our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. Let me end with this story. <clears throat> you guys know we don't believe in luck. 
good luck or bad luck. But this is what the, the guy says in the story, and it kind of makes a point, and then we'll finish up and pray. But listen to the story. It's actually from the Chinese culture. It seems that a poor old farmer had a single horse on which he departed, uh, that, that he depended for everything. He pulled the plow, drew the wagon, and was the old farmer's sole means of transportation. One day a bee stung the horse, and in fright, he ran off into the mountains. The old farmer went in search of him, but was not able to find him. He came home, and his neighbors in the village came by and said, we were really sorry about your bad luck in losing your horse. But the old farmer shrugged and said, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? A week later, his horse came back accompanied by 12 wild horses whom he had obviously encountered. And the old farmer was able to corral all these fine animals which turned out to be an unexpected windfall. Again, news spread throughout the village. And his neighbors came and said, congratulations on your good luck. This is outstanding. To which the old farmer once again shrugged and said, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? The only son of the farmer decided to take the, uh, the most of, to make the most of this good fortune. So he started to break the wild horses so that they could be sold and be put to work in the fields. But as he attempted to do this, he got thrown off of one of the horses and his leg was broken in three places. When word of this accident spread throughout the village, again the neighbors came saying, we're really sorry about the bad luck of your son getting hurt. The old man shrugged and said, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? Two weeks later, a war broke out between the provinces and China. The army came through conscripting every able-bodied male under 50. Because the son was injured, he did not have to go, and it turned out to save his life for everyone in the village who was drafted was killed in the battle. So there's a couple points to this, and one is that we as humans are in no position to make final judgments on the things that happen to us. And the second is this, both good and bad days come from the hand of God because he loves us and knows what is best for us and will always do what is best for us. You can take that to the bank. Regardless of what comes your way, Sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms his child in the storm, and sometimes he takes his child to be with him through the storm. But either way, you can trust his loving, wise control. Look at your notes. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It comes back to a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. So Father, help us to see more and more that wisdom, seeing and responding to life from your perspective and power is not a technique to be mastered, but is about knowing and experiencing the beauty and the glory of the person and work of Christ Jesus transforming every part of our lives for your immeasurable glory and our indescribable and indestructible joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, 
Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.